morning. Good morning. Oh, good morning. What a special moment. Thank you, worship team. Uh, it's great to be here and welcome you and those who may be watching online. Pastor Brian said make sure you do that. So you can tell him I did. I'm sure he'll watch it. He'll let me know. Um, it is really good to be here. I enjoy this church very much. Now, I recently came across some statistics, an interesting set of statistics on sanity. Now, they don't have anything to do with today's sermon, but I thought I'd share them with you anyway. According to the study, one out of every four Americans is suffering from some kind of mental illness. So now I want you to think of your three best friends. Because <laughs> if they're all right, guess who? <laughs> We're starting a new series, a summer series, and it's going to be on the Sermon on the Mount and uh, the Beatitudes. It's Matthew 5 through 7 is called the Sermon on the Mount. This sermon happened early in Jesus' ministry. He was still establishing himself as a preacher and a teacher. And we know from the, very few, from the last verses in chapter 4 that Jesus was developing quite a following. He had been going through, throughout Galilee preaching and healing. And according to Matthew 4.25, it says, Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Large crowds. Now the disciples were part of that group, obviously, and they'd been listening to him teach and preach, and they had observed all the various miracles that he had done. In fact, verse 24 in Matthew 4 says, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, the paralyzed. You know, do you ever wonder what the disciples thought when they observed this happening? You know, sometimes I think we, we think that the people in the Bible, they're kind of Bible people. No, they're ordinary people like you and I. They just lived in a different time. So what, as these disciples observed what Jesus was doing, I often wonder what they thought. What picture did they have in mind as to who Jesus really was? This was just, after all, the beginning of his ministry. What was he going to do? How was what he did and what he was continuing to do, how was that going to affect their life? What was really going to be involved in being one of his closest followers? Well, you know, we don't know the exact location where this teaching took place. It's generally thought that it could have been on the gen gently sloping hills um, at the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee, not far from Capernaum. It says at the beginning in chapter 5, it says, Now when he saw the crowds, he went up to the mountainside and he sat down. 
wasn't tired. Jewish rabbis sat down when they taught. So Jesus sat down and his disciples, it says, his disciples came to him and he began to teach them. He began to teach the disciples. Now what's interesting is then in Matthew 7, 28 and 29, it says, after Jesus finished speaking, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he taught as one who had real authority, quite unlike the teachers of religious law. So obviously, Jesus attracted another crowd. The teaching was to the disciples, it says. He was teaching the disciples. Obviously, there was a good-sized crowd that was around there, and they also became a part of the teaching. They were also listening in to the teaching. They were amazed, not only because of the subject matter, but it says that he taught as one who had real authority. I, I find that interesting. I think the Bible has a lot of humor, or, or else I have a very warped sense of humor. But I think the Bible has a lot of humor in it. This is a humor to me. Because the teachers, the rabbis, the Jewish leaders that were the teachers, they were the, quote-unquote, the in guys, right? They were the ones. And yet it says that when Jesus taught, he taught as one who had real authority, unlike the teachers of the religious law. Reflect on that a minute. Jesus is sitting down teaching the disciples. These others are listening in. And his manner in which he says things, how he says it, he says one who has authority. Not like the other teachers that they're used to listening to. I find that very interesting. You know, Jesus doesn't present in this teaching, he doesn't present the gospel. He doesn't talk about how to be saved, how to have eternal life. He doesn't give you a list of do's and don'ts. But he does describe what our inner life should look like once we have become one of his followers. Matthew 5, 3 through 12, is known as the Beatitudes. It, think of it as Jesus' intro to his teaching, to his sermon. He literally summarizes his entire sermon in these nine verses. And then he takes two and a half chapters, the way Matthew broke it down, but then he takes two and a half chapters to explain the teaching that he has just done. We read Matthew 5, the Beatitudes 3 through 12. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will show mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons of God. 
Blessed are those who, perse- who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In some of your translations, it may say happy instead of blessed. I don't think that's a good translation. I don't like that. Happiness is an emotion. Blessed is a spiritual state of being. Happiness is circumstantial. It depends on the circumstances whether I'm happy or not. Blessed is concrete. Happiness is momentary. Whatever caused me to be happy at this time and at this instant may go away, and later I'm not happy. Blessed is eternal. Well, today we're going to concentrate on the first beatitude. Verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There's something in there I want to grab onto real quick, and then we'll move right on. But I think sometimes when we read scripture, well, I do. Uh, Maybe you, you can just listen in on my issue at times. Because I'm familiar with the scripture, sometimes I just sort of read it quickly. I sort of just move over it because, yeah, I know what it says instead of taking and reflecting on it. Notice in here that blessed are the poor in spirit. Not will the poor in spirit become blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Not theirs will become the kingdom of heaven. No, it's there now. Jesus is telling them, this is really controversial teaching in his day. But he's telling them, look, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? Well, since it's talking about spirit, it must mean spiritual, the spiritual life. That's good for a graduate degree. I can figure that out, isn't it? Spirit spirit is not talking about your physical or even an attitude, but it's specifically talking about spiritual. In Greek, there are two, two words that are used for poor. The one used in the text is patahos. The other Greek word for poor is pens. Pens was used for the man who had to work for a living. He had enough to get by on, but he really had no surplus. Kind of as I read that and thought about that, I, yeah, that's the family I grew up in. We had enough to get by on, but we didn't have any surplus. Patahos, it was absolute and abject poverty. In other words, to be totally, the way the scripture reads, to be poor in spirit, to be in abject poverty spiritually, You had to put your whole trust then 
in God. Some translations put it this way, blessed in spirit are the poor. That's even worse. Being poor doesn't in itself make a person blessed in spirit. I don't know about you, but I've met a lot of poor people who were bitter and they were mean. Jesus is not saying that people that live in poverty in ghettos are especially blessed. That's not what he's saying at all. In fact, a part of the ministry of the gospel is to alleviate the suffering of those people that are living in such conditions. This verse has nothing to do with your bank account. Poor in spirit simply means depending, dependent on God, knowing I can't do it myself. Dependent on God, I can't do it myself. You know, sometimes we define things by looking at things that are opposite, and that helps us define what it is that we're trying to define. Well, the opposite of poor in spirit is proud. God hates pride. Psalm 10.4 in the New Living Translation says, The wicked are too proud to seek God. They seem to think that God is dead. In Proverbs 8, 13, it says, All who fear the Lord will hate evil. Therefore, I hate pride and arrogance, corruption, and perverse speech. In Proverbs 16, 18, it says, Pride goes before destruction and haughtiness before a fall. And in Proverbs 6, 17, there's a discussion there in in that verse in Proverbs of the list of six things that God hates. And numero uno, the top one, is it's pride that God hates. Through the prophet Jeremiah, God tells us that he's against the proud. James wrote that God resists the proud. And then Paul lists some things that are opposite that are opposite to what it is to be poor in spirit. So these are opposites to being poor in spirit. Paul described them as backstabbers, haters of God, insolent, proud, and boastful. They invent new ways of sinning, and they disobey their parents. Paul wrote to Timothy, 2 Timothy 3.2, when he was talking about end times with Timothy, and he said, For people will love only themselves and their money. They will be boastful and proud, scoffing at God, disobedient to their parents, and ungrateful. They will consider nothing sacred. It's interesting that being poor in spirit That's not who we are naturally. We naturally are on the other side. Again, we're not talking about human temperaments. We're not talking about a person who's an introvert, who's naturally retiring. 
We're not talking about someone who's constantly demeaning themselves by saying, well, I, I'm, just, I, I'm just a nobody. Remember, the Beatitudes are talking about the characteristics that mark the citizens of the kingdom of God. The interesting thing about that is, is as such, these characteristics are not admired by the world. The world places value on opposite kinds of traits. The world said, says, blessed is the go-getter. Blessed is the man who asserts himself. Blessed is the man who blows his own horn. Blessed is the man who is self-sufficient. See, poor in spirit is not something that you can become by effort or by decision. I didn't wake up this morning and say to myself, today, I'm going to become poor in spirit. It's not something that we just wake up and say that we're going to do. It's not something that happens because of our effort or our decision. There is no 10-step program to make you poor in spirit. It's the result of the work of God's spirit in a person's life. Poor in spirit is the result of a true encounter with God. Pride often comes when we compare ourselves with others, seeing ourselves in the light of others, and you, and you know how we do that. You know, okay, you know how I do that. You can listen in. I find somebody that when I compare to, I look pretty good, and I compare myself to them. Uh, I don't compare myself to Colin to play tennis, and I don't compare myself to Curtis to play golf. I find some other guy that hits to the side that he thinks the fairways for walking because the ball's in the woods. That's what we do. We pick someone else. We pick someone else. So that we can say to ourselves, well, I'm cleaner than he is. I'm smarter than he is. Because if I measure myself against the others that I select, well, I'm not so bad off after all. You know, it's interesting, when we compare ourselves to others, we make excuses. When we compare ourselves to ourselves, we make progress. That was part of the problem that the Pharisee had in Luke 18. Let me read that, uh, these four verses to you. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance he would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. 
For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. You know, there's probably no... Excuse me. Yeah, this poor in spirit comes from seeing myself in the light of God. Not seeing myself as I relate to other people, as I compare myself to other people. Poor in spirit happens when I see myself in the light of God and who he is. You know, it's interesting in Scripture, there was probably no purer man who ever lived than Daniel. You know, when we read the Bible, the Bible's usually not short on skipping over people's shortcomings. Uh, they describe a person just like they are, warts and all. You remember, you know, think of Moses, think of David, think of Peter. But it's interesting that Daniel is one of the few in which the Bible had absolutely nothing to say in a detrimental way about his character. And Daniel, when he saw the vision, declared this in Daniel 10. So I was left there all alone to see this amazing vision. My strength left me. My face grew deathly pale, and I felt very weak. I was Isaiah had a vision of God that is recorded in Isaiah 6, the first five verses. Let me read that. I'm sure it's familiar to you. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphists, seraphists each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two wings they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of its, his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe is me, I cried. I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Peter, when he truly realized who Jesus was, said this. He felt to, it's described this way. When Simon Peter realized what had happened, he fell to his knees before Jesus, and he said, Lord, please leave me. I'm such a sinful man. With each one of these people, when they saw God, they saw the truth about themselves. Perhaps even for the first time. You see, when I go into a dark room and there's a mirror there and I don't turn on the light, I don't get much truth about me revealed to me. But when I see myself in the light, I get an entirely different picture. When we see our spiritual conditions in the light of who God is, 
then we get a true picture of who we are. Poor in spirit. Let's look briefly at some examples of poor in spirit as, as they're recorded for us in Scripture. Abraham, when he was interceding with God for the city of Sodom in Genesis 18, says, Then Abraham spoke again, Since I have begun, let me speak further to my Lord, even though I am but dust and ashes. And Jacob, when he was in great fear at the news of his brother Esau, was coming to meet him with 400 men. He cried to the Lord, I'm not worthy of all the unfailing love and faithfulness you have shown to me, your servant. When I left home and crossed the Jordan River, I owned nothing except a walking stick. Now my household fills two large camps. In Job, who had been defending himself of the charges that were being made by his friends, but he was finally challenged by God, Job said this, I'm nothing. How could I ever find the answers? I will cover my mouth with my hand. And then a couple chapters later, Job says, as he's addressing God, I had only heard about you before, but now I have seen you with my own eyes. I take everything back I said, and I sit in dust and ashes to show my repentance. Remember the Roman centurion when he heard that Jesus was coming to his house to heal his servant. In Luke 7, 6, it says, So he, Jesus went with them, but just before they arrived at the house, the officer sent some friends to say, Lord, don't trouble yourself by coming to my home, for I'm not worthy of such an honor. And the prodigal son, when he'd finally come to himself and returned to his father's cell, house, he said, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Please take me as a hired servant. The church at Laodicea was saying of themselves in the book of Revelation, we are rich. We are increased with goods. We have need of nothing. That's the absolute opposite of poor in spirit. And the Lord replied back to them and said, You are poor, wretched, naked, miserable, and blind. You see, it's important that our view of ourselves matches God's view of us. Only those who are poor in spirit will ever enter the kingdom of heaven. Those who have had a true encounter with the Lord are the only ones that are truly poor in spirit. The ones that have had the encounter and have asked him to come into their lives they are the ones who are poor in spirit. Last week on America's Got Talent, which I didn't see, I don't watch a lot of television. I watch sports. 
But I didn't watch, but last week on America's Got Talent, one of the contestants called herself Nightbird. Maybe you've seen this or seen it posted on social media. She sang an original song about her battle with cancer. Her real name is Jane Marzuski, which is probably why she picked Nightbird. And she writes a blog that's titled Bald Girl in the Dark. She had been given a death sentence with cancer. She's one who is poor in spirit because of how she met God. What I'm going to read now is taken from one of her blog posts. I haven't come as far as I'd like in understanding the things that happened this year. But here's one thing I do know. When it comes to pain, God isn't often in the business of taking it away. Instead, he adds to it. He's more of a giver than a taker. He doesn't take away my darkness. He adds light. He doesn't spare me of thirst. He brings me water. He doesn't cure my loneliness. He comes near. So why do, believe that, why do we believe that when we are in pain, it must mean that God is far? In the beginning, there was immense, immeasurable emptiness. But God was drawn to it like a fog to the sea. He stretched out his spirit over the void, and he stayed. If the stories I've heard about him are true, Surely he is nearest of all to me, to us. You see, the creator is still here, where he has always been, hovering over the emptiness. I'm still reeling, drenched in sorrow. I'm still begging, bargaining, demanding, disappearing. And I guess that means I have all the more reason to say thank you because God is drawing near to me. Again and again and again. No matter how many times that he is sent away. If you really want God's purpose fulfilled in your life, You got to start with God, not yourself. It's when we see ourselves in the light of God is the beginning of fulfilling purpose in life. Blessed are.
Father, we are very blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit. God, it's only as we seek you first that we start with you that we can be good. Thank you for who you are and for being with us, for accepting us just as.